Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Okay. Well, it looks like we're on. So uh, Blog Talk Radio disposed of the countdown uh, messages this morning. So I don't know why, but our uh, our show seems to be live. So good morning. This is Mike Vandervoort. We're doing a special edition of Drive Through HR today. Uh, there will be our normal show with Rob and schooling tomorrow at uh, on Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And but today we're going to talk some labor relations. Uh, as many of you know, I work for an organization called Q Inc. C U E Inc. And Q has been sponsoring the uh, Drive Through HR podcast. But most of the topics we talk about are, uh, are related to different parts of HR. Today we have a guest who's well well versed in what Q. Q works at as an organization, which is to help employers create positive workplace relationships in, in their uh, in their respective companies. So our guest is Phil Wilson, president of the of the Labor Relations Institute. Good morning, Phil. Welcome to Drive Through HR. How are you? Good. I'm great, Mike. Good morning to you. Thanks. Um, I, I know I gave you just a little the president part, but but for listeners. Um, Assuming some probably aren't from Q at some point, can you uh, can you tell people your background and what LRI does? Sure, uh, I'm the president, as you said, and general counsel of LRI. I've uh, been here since 1997. The our the Labor Relations Institute was started by my dad in 1978, so we're uh, you know just over 40 years old now. Um, I started out as a labor attorney, so I practiced law in Chicago for a while after law school, and then I I was in-house for a year as a a director of human resources for a riverboat casino, of all places, and then uh, moved back here in 97. And uh, Labor Relations Institute, our company, is a full-service labor and positive employee relations consulting business, and we help companies all over the the country, uh, you know, as well as in Canada, um, deal with labor and employee relations issues as they pop up. Uh, I'm also the founder of an organization called Approachable Leadership, and uh, we do a lot of positive leadership um, teaching and and coaching uh, through that organization. So that's me. What, uh, before, before we jump to like the the you know the low road, it's not the low road really, but labor relations. A lot of people think think that we do you know sort of down and dirty black hat stuff, and a lot of it is not that. But um, what the approachable leadership thing, it, Phil, as I recall, and I may be slightly misstating your goal, but you 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 did a a ton of research about leadership supervisors and what what makes the best supervisor. Uh, on the planet, and I, th- I believe your hairy audacious goal was to uh, work with companies and train a million supervisors in approachability. And I don't mind. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right. That 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 is the that is our major goal. We're uh, mm-hmm. yeah we're ways off from it, but we've uh, we've trained thousands and thousands, um, and we're. Uh, what, what- 
is approachability like in a short, you know, in in the short form? Yeah. So in a nutshell, approachability is is just the behavior that a leader uh, a leader engages in to create a safe uh, place for the people that they lead to either let them know about concerns, to make suggestions, to help them um, develop. But basically, you want to create you know a safe environment for that and. It's it's heavily related to trust, uh, but it but they're not the same thing. And and approachability, if you want to boil it down into kind of the just the the three quick things that a leader must do to to be seen as approachable by their team, they have to be open, so so uh, available to their team. They have to be understanding, so that's you know active listening and and empathy. And then they have to uh, take action. They have to to um, you know, follow up and follow through. And if you do those three things well over time, uh, your team will see you as approachable. And being approachable has just massive positive impacts on an organization. It reduces turnover, increases uh, uh, innovation, uh, decreases frustration, increases engagement. There's just a lot of really great benefits to being approachable. And, of course, one of those benefits is that uh, you don't see any need uh, to be represented by someone outside your organization. Um, if you have a good relationship with your supervisor, uh, you know if you've got a challenge or a problem or a concern or a suggestion, you know you're going to go to your to your leader, and that the, the best organizations run that way. We spend a lot of time, not just at Q, but kind of in general in the HR space. We spend a lot of time talking about, you know, who the leaders are in the C-suite, how do they help build culture. Um, but when you start talking about employee and labor relations and that idea that you have somebody that you can go to that, that you trust enough in management to help you, that person is quite often the first line supervisor, right? Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I mean, so first of all, just about everyone is a first level leader to someone, right? So, I mean, right. you know, even the CEO has, has, for, has, has leaders uh, above them and, and, um, yeah, but but all the way through the organization, you have somebody who's your immediate supervisor. Um, so so the relationships are important. But when you talk about you know the importance of culture and the importance of uh, you know kind of setting setting the tone, at the end of the day, really, the t- at the top levels of the organization, the most important thing that you can do is make sure that that frontline day-to-day relationship between the the, the front-level supervisor. Uh, and and the person below them, the folks you know that are actually doing the work, that that relationship is strong, that that relationship is comfortable and safe, um, and so and that employees in those relationships you know feel feel safe going to their to their leader. Um, and and I mean you can just you can think of all kinds of you know issues and concerns that pop up. The whole, the whole Me Too, um, a, a lot a lot of the reason why people don't report. Uh, harassment is because of there's all you know concerns about is am I going to be taken seriously um, is is um, is there going to be anything done about it um, you know I don't feel safe uh, bringing bringing up the the subject and that's all around leader approachability the same thing with safety um, issues I mean there you know there's a lot of you know these, these are kind of like company killing um, decisions sometimes that that if if only people felt safe bringing up a concern to their front level supervisor, um, things would go different. And so it's a it's just a really critical 
uh, leader behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so, so talking about you know companies that are experiencing problems, um, go kind of kind of go back up to the top of our of our discussion point list, I guess. Um, you know, you, you mentioned third party intervention or, or representation or some some word like that. Um, okay. And obviously, um, well, not obviously. Um, unions. I'll, I'll just let's just go there. Unions have been around uh, a lot longer than Q and a lot longer than, than LRI, um, but they are organizations that, that were originally set up to help assist employers and defend employers and you know negotiate on a half, not, not employers, employees, and negotiate on behalf of employees in order to make the workplace more fair and equitable and all that kind of stuff. And that they, they, did that it, you know the union movement in the U.S. started 100 plus years ago, and now it's not as successful. So I guess let's just let's talk real quick about the difference between labor and employee relations, and then what. And I don't want to go too basic, but basically the role of unions. Let's just go through those real quick, and then we'll jump into the the, the real conversation. Well, the way I conceptualize it is so labor relations is 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 where you're actually dealing with a represented workforce. So, so um, you know, employees in sort of the state of nature, right, they're, they're not represented. They represent themselves and they deal directly with their management. Uh, and uh, at some point they can choose to be represented by a union. And at the point that they, they make that decision, and it's usually done in a in a secret ballot election, but but at the at the point that they've made the decision, they then are now represented, and they no longer can deal directly with their management on you know wages, hours, working conditions. Um, instead, they must um, have the, have a union speak for them. And like you said, when unions were in their ascendancy, so this is in the you know in the 1930s, kind of coming out of the Great Depression, um, working conditions were were Maybe not universally, but but mostly horrible. Um, you know, there there were a lot of children uh, working in factories and and being hurt. Um, the, uh, you know, air quality, uh, hours of work, the just uh, you know, th- things were were terrible. And unions sort of grew out of the protest uh, of of workers for having to deal with those conditions. And and they started off very weak. Um, they they were they were not able to um, really accomplish that much. Um, but in the you know 19 uh, sort of, sort of coming out of the depression, and then of course we go into World War II. And, and as 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 the war is over, um, unions become much more powerful, and and they 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 really become ascendant. Um, a lot of the labor and employment laws that we live with today come out of um, you know come out of things that unions negotiated um, back in those days they the um, I, I think there's a lot of you know you, you'll you'll see a lot of, of uh, claims made that you know unions are what created the middle class and unions are um, sort of responsible for uh, a, a lot of a lot of Things that happened during that period, I, I I take issue with a lot of that. So so one 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 main reason that unions were able to be, be powerful and 
that uh, workers were ascendant because it wasn't just the, the the represented workers that whose conditions improved. All, all workers' conditions improved, but that that's a function of the fact that um, you know most of Europe and uh, you know not to mention the you know a lot of the rest of the world was destroyed in World War II. Um, America was was basically the only industrial um, economy that that wasn't completely decimated, and so we rebuilt everything. Um, and and a lot of our working uh, men and women, you know, were were killed in the war. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, you know, workers had a whole heck of a lot more leverage, uh, you know, in the 1940s than they had in the 1930s. Let's say. Um, so so, but. Whatever the, whatever the economic reasons, ultimately what happened during that period is, is, is unions became more powerful. They um, were able to, um, you know, to, to benefit their members, and, and you know, they, they grew in power. They, they probably grew to be too powerful, and so the, their abuses then resulted in, uh, you know, some restrictions that come out in, like, the 19, uh, you know, around 1960, and, um and then, and then, as as the world kind of caught up to to America, and uh, the economy flattened, and things became more competitive, uh, then we saw you know unions decline dramatically, main, mainly because a lot of the companies they represented just weren't competitive. Um, and so, so that kind of brings us to today, where unions are really, um, you know, probably at their lowest point in terms of people that they represent. Uh, than than in you know since it's been recorded uh, and and they're you know they're struggling to figure out you know what to do next. Right, and and and, uh, and, and it's certainly true in the U.S. where it's like less. I think it's six point four percent of the private sector workforce. I don't remember the exact number, and and it was like eleven or twelve percent of the public sector workforce were represented. And that's still declining. Uh, it's bounced a little bit the last couple years, but um, and one of the things LRI does is provide a, a monthly dashboard where you track all all the activity that happens from unfair labor practices to to petitions for uh, for election and so on. You also have a, a, a pretty great arch. Um, you had some in your last newsletter. You you mentioned something that was interesting in that union organizing had kind of declined in 2018. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, we, so we track, uh, we've got a service called LRI right now, um, which, you know, and you can find it at LRIRightNow.com, but that is a research service where we've tracked for uh, decades all of the publicly available information about, you know, how unions are, um, uh, you know, what they're doing. So, you know, where they're organizing, where they have contracts in effect, um, where they're being decertified, which is where you get rid of a union, um, strikes, and, and so on. And, um, you know, and anyone can go there. There's, there's, there's places where you can go and see just for free what's going on. We also do kind of quarterly updates that, you, that are available for purchase. And, and then there's libraries if you want to, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're really into it, you can you know, look at what's happening on a daily basis. But if you look at 2018, the, uh, the number – of units that unions petitioned to organize, so that so that's that's kind of the starting point. Like we talked about earlier, the way a union comes into an organization is they there's a vote, and that vote starts with what, what's called a petition. And um, you know the number of petitions last year were down dramatically over 2017, down almost right around 20 percent. Um, 
and and it's not like 2017 was some kind of banner year for organizing and that they took a step back like they you know um election petition activity has been on a steady decline really over the last 20 years uh and it had kind of flattened out during the Obama administration it it, it was up slightly in some years but it was mostly flat so maybe the decline had been stemmed somewhat but uh last year's decline was dramatic and mm. and which begs the question right why you know what happened what's what's going on and right. um yeah and i i think I, I think the best explanation that i can come up with is just you know unions were really distracted last year so unions you don't know a lot about them you know they're heavily involved in democratic politics they're they are uh probably you know democrats best and most reliable um, resource for getting people to the polls and, and the unions provide a whole lot of boots on the ground, you know, campaign resources and money and, um, and just do a lot to help democratic politicians. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware, Mike, but we had, you know, kind of an important, uh, presidential election a couple of years ago. And then, uh, <laughs> last, you know, and then yeah. <laughs> I heard something um, about that somewhere, I think. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the, this, uh, the, these elections in November, uh, where, where Democrats won back the house, um, were, were just, you know, critically, critically important to, um, to unions and, and to, you know anybody that's um you know anybody that's that's pro democrat um you know and they're looking ahead to the next presidential election and uh it really felt like it was maybe critical to the survival of the democratic party and those, those sound like huge statements but i i mean i think at some level it's really true um that they they were under siege basically and they felt like this was their opportunity to um, at least take back over one branch of the government, which they did, um, because if the House doesn't agree with the Senate, then nothing nothing gets passed on to the president. Uh, the shutdown th that we're in right now uh, is is a good example of of that. Um, mm -hmm. And and so, in any event, unions just were really really focused last year on the November elections, and and we even saw. Um, where there was organizing activity, it, it was uh, a lot of it really centered around some of these districts where uh, where you had key house races last year. So mm. um, there were some kind of unusual campaigns that popped up in, in pockets of the U.S. that you would, that just had you scratching your head. But um, but then but then if you kind of mapped out um, some of these hot congressional districts, it's like oh well. You know, there, there, there were a whole ton of union organizers running around knocking on doors uh, in that district at the, around the same time. So it makes sense that that's where you would see uh, petition activity. But anyway, to sum that up, I just feel like that unions were really mostly focused on um, on the uh, on getting Democrats elected to the House and the Senate, which they they weren't successful at. Or as successful anyway, and, um, and but but they really um, spent their resources there, and it's it's way too early to tell right now um, whether that has turned around in this year. But I expect this year to probably be more like 2017. Um, you know, unions can't just abandon traditional organizing if they're going to survive, and so um, 
I think I think we'll see an increase in organizing activity um, this year. Okay. So you think it'll go back to what it looked like maybe in the year 2017 versus 2018? Yeah, kind of maybe, that level? maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about activism, but I want to hold that. Um, let's talk about the uh, the National Labor Relations Board for a minute, since we touched on the election that happened somewhere some, one of those days last month. Um, now, the, there's a historical trend that that the board is kind of controlled by the person or the party that's got the White House. Um, and so, this can you talk about kind of how this board has formulated and a little bit of the past history under President Obama, maybe not, not real deep, but just to kind of illustrate the differences? Well, I think, you know, to sum that up, it's basically a political football, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when Obama came in, and I, I think just for perspective, I think it's important for people to really remember, um, you know, what led to the Noel Canning Supreme Court case, right? So when Obama came in, um, there was a lot of effort to prevent him from having a full, cause a, a full uh, quorum at the National Labor Relations Board. So the, the NLRB has five members, and traditionally um, it's always been three members from the president's party, two members from the op- opposition party. Um, and so uh, when uh, the Obama administration came in, of course initially when the Obama administration came in, they had. Uh, he also had control of the House and the Senate. Um, there was a there was a huge election, not unlike this election we just had in November, uh, where the House flips over to um, uh, the Republicans, and then the Senate ended up flipping as well. And, and the Senate is where all of the the nominations happen for um, you know anybody that has to be confirmed, which board NLRB uh, members have to be confirmed by the Senate. So. Um, the, you know, the Republicans would not confirm uh, replacements to the NLRB. Obama was forced to make some recess appointments. That's that's what Noel Canning was all about. So so the the legality of those was found by the Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, to be suspect. And so uh, any, anyway, there was um, um, there there was a, a period, a, a pretty long period of time where the the NLRB. First, well, there was a period of time where the NLRB basically was just not able to function uh, during the Obama administration. But but then the, even when it was able to function, uh, there were significant periods where there was you know maybe three Democrats and one Republican, um, and 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 the the, the Democrats kind of always had this um, not just a majority, but but they had had a quorum where there would maybe be only one dissenting vote or no dissenting votes. Um, now, fast forward to President Trump's administration. So um, the Democrats in the Senate have been um, sort of playing the same game with, uh, you know, with, with uh, the Trump appointees that was being played by the Democrats with the um, – I'm sorry, that was being played by the Republicans under Obama. And so a lot of the appointees has been slow – there's tons of appointees that haven't um, haven't made it uh, at the Department of Labor, EEOC. Um, you know, there's just been been a number of them. But at the NLRB, uh, they were able to get through um, three Republican nominees and get them confirmed. 
And, and then one uh, Democrat, former Chairman Mark Pierce, uh, rolled off. His term expired. There was a lot of kind of backroom drama uh, about whether he would get reappointed, which he was. Uh, but then when the Congress switched over, he has to be re-nominated and has not been. Um, and so um, he, he, as we stand here today, the board sits at three Republicans, one Democrat. Uh, and uh, I, I would guess right now, just sort of outside looking in, that there won't be a Democrat, a Democrat proposed uh, anytime soon. I think that they'll continue to operate three to one. At the end of this year, um, McFerrin, who's the other Democrat, her term expires, so then it'll be three Republicans, no Democrats. And uh, that's usually the time where you start seeing kind of package deals floated. Um, and so my, my guess would be, you know, we'll go this year three to one. I'm, I'm hopeful that that happens, um, just, be, just because there was a serious period of time where a lot of law changed uh, during the Obama administration where the Republicans basically just had, you know, one person writing dissents all the time, but there was no, um, you know, no way to sort of stop a lot of, uh, um, a lot of law changing. And, and the thing that people a lot of times don't understand, a three to two majority is a lot different than a three to one majority or a three to zero majority, because there's a lot of bureaucratic things that, that second minority um, party member can do to just, you know, throw refrigerators on the train tracks and prevent prevent stuff from from reaching a decision. Um, so, so it's much better to be a three to one than a three to two, and it's even better to be three to zero um, versus three to one. Mm. Um, the board, so yeah, the Obama board, you know, changed like somebody, Michael Tito or somebody quotes forty five hundred years of past. Labor, uh, labor law precedent. They turned it over in like three years. This board's real, technically been together for a couple of years, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on the board. There were some pretty high expectations that this board would go forth and reverse a lot of that stuff, and they've done a little bit, but not that much. Any uh, any sense in why it seems like it's dragging dragging along, or is is it just uh, the, the political uh, environment we're operating in now? Um, yeah, great question. I, you know, I, the the quick answer is I don't know. I, but I think your observations, I, I completely agree with your observation that not much has happened. I, I mean, it's not it's not true to say nothing's happened. Like there there right. is, so there was a, a, a significant number of decisions that came out down right at the end of, when Phil Miscamara was still on the board. Um, a, a real, you know, some some of kind of the I mean, there was a week or two there where a good chunk of the most egregious uh, decisions that came down uh, from the Obama board that 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 were that reversed, you know, decades and decades of precedent um, were were flipped back to the to the prior law. So uh, it's you know that's 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 true. Um, there was a huge decision overturning BFI, which ended up getting withdrawn, and, and that's a whole, um, you know, high drama in and of itself. But the, uh, the, there have been some uh, important decisions made. But, but if, you, 
if you're a labor nerd like me and you kind of like watch the the weekly uh, you know list of decisions that are coming down, you know it is frustrating, especially now that we're in this period where where it is a three to one majority and it has been for several months. Um, you know, it's frustrating that most of the decisions that are coming down are just really procedural. A lot of them are basically sending cases back to, to administrative law judges because of decisions that, the, for example, the Supreme Court made in Murphy Oil, um, which deals with uh, you know, m- mandatory arbitration of uh, class action type complaints. Um, and, uh, and then they, they made a big the, the Boeing decision was a big decision, and so they're remanding a bunch of cases that dealt with handbook uh, provisions that they feel like were dealt with in Boeing. But but tons of these decisions are just sort of one-page procedural, you know, send this back to to the ALJ for more uh, deliberation, and and uh, very few are uh, substantive, and, and and most of even the ones that are substantive aren't really dealing with these big kind of key um, issues that they need to deal with, like, you know, access to email or, um, you know, the joint employer issue um, or things like that. Now, activity. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, that said, um, you know, Chairman Ring has, has, has mentioned that, uh, and not just mentioned, I mean, they're, they're definitely taking action on, on this front, which is uh, they, they want to engage in more rulemaking you know that they 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 feel like other agencies have uh, had success with rulemaking the obama board engaged in rulemaking and so they are wanting to deal with some of these sort of political football type issues because it's 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 not uncommon and it's super frustrating to the business community that because of the way that the board is structured you know, you'll have these decisions that will say, okay, the law is this way when Republicans are in, and then when Democrats are in, it flips to the opposite way, and so on and so on. It's really hard to run a business when you're not sure what the law is going to be, you know, two years from now. Um, and so the, the answer to that is to engage in rulemaking, which is a, it's harder to change. It's slower to change. It doesn't mean it can't be changed, but um, – but it's it's a little bit more stable, and so uh, Chairman Ring, I know, I've heard him speak on this. Um, yeah, he's he's in favor of engaging in more rulemaking on these cases where, so things like joint employer, you know, where um, it became a political football, uh, but even before uh, the the BFI case, you know, it it was still a little bit of a murky area of uh, board law and so you know what they want to do is try to clarify as much as possible um, what counts as a joint employer and 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 so that it just becomes sort of concrete um, in most cases you know whether you are or aren't yeah and even and and it gets even muddier because the 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 nlrb definition of joint employer is different than the eoc Mm. definition of joint you know so agency to agency they're not consistent and it really makes employers and and crazy and then i guess employment lawyers you know depending on which side they're on see a lot of opportunities um we have about 14 minutes left phil uh, appreciate you covering all that. Um, I'm just going to real quickly, this is Michael. We're doing a Monday edition of uh, Drive Through HR. Our guest is, is Phil Wilson, president of the Labor Relations Institute, and we're talking about some labor and employee relations trends and topics that are going to be prevalent in 2019. One of the things we saw, Phil, I'm going to pivot over to activism now. One of the things we saw in 
it, in the last couple of years, and it, it, you know, I think it goes, I guess, if you count it as going all the way back to the Occupy movement uh, of several years ago, but there's been a definite rise in um, strike, you know, traditional strike activity. I mean, the LA teachers are out today for the first time in 30 years, you know, that, but we also see fast food strikes at McDonald's, you know, tech companies that where their employees are walking out on a one hour, one day strike. And I guess just activism, you know, even though the labor traditional labor is a little bit more abundant and maybe the national labor relations board is not as speedy as it should be. There's still a lot going on, but it's, it looks a lot different. Um, you want to, you want, you want to talk about that and why you think that might be happening that way? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting kind of change of events because you would think when, you know, if you talk about there's a bunch of people out on strike, you know, you would, you would think that the, the other half of that story has to be that unions are getting stronger, and it's really not. I mean, unions are in the background of a number of those. So the fast food strikes, uh, obviously the teachers' union strikes. Um, you know, the, the unions are moving around in the in behind the scenes in all of these, um, but it's not clear that the people that are engaging in the walkouts or this activity are really all that interested in uh, joining a union, but right. they're still having major, you know, uh, major impact. And they are, um, and, and, and I, you know, just as an observer, I feel like our, uh, they're happening more and more, you know, the, the scale and scope of them seems to be increasing. And so I don't know that, it's necessarily a good news for unions, but if you're an employer, it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like if your mm -hmm. employees all walk out, it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter why, you know, they're not there to take care of your customers and um, you've got a major problem on your hands. Uh, and, and it's, and it's not only that, but that, you know, again, going back to where we started, right. On leader approachability, if, if people feel like they have to walk out of your, your business and stop working and stop taking care of your customers to get your attention. Like that's a problem, right? There's, there's a, there's a, there's an employment relationship issue um, there. And so uh, it, but it is really interesting. Uh, you and I've talked about before, but there's a book that I love called pendulum, um, which is based on another uh, really more in depth set of research by, by uh, on a, in a book called generations. But the, the basic idea of that whole concept is that we, we have a tendency as a we, – well, we basically, and as a father of a 15-year-old, I'm, I'm living it right now, but we basically reject, you know, the, uh, the, the worldview of our parents, right? And so um, – and I, and I think it's something that's happened from, like, time immemorial. Uh, and, uh, and, and the, the basic idea of this whole uh, – out of research and, and the theory is that this this rejection back and forth that hap happens from generation to generation tends to swing a pendulum, if you will, from uh, kind of a, a, a selfish, me-centered focus, um, and then it swings back to more of a community we uh, focus. And, and then the, the key the key learning is that. As the pendulum swings, it tends to hit a point at an apex where we always take a good thing too far, right? Like there's nothing wrong with being community-minded, and there's nothing right. wrong with wanting to, um, you know, think about think about yourself, right? The, like those are those are both good 
um, things to have, and, and maybe you can be a little bit too much one way or the other. The, the key, though, is that at certain points in time, we tend to take those too far. And at the apex of we, which is, I think, happening in 2022, so we're basically in the apex of we as we speak, uh, one of the things that they predict, and that has happened throughout history, is basically kind of mob rule and uh, populism you, you, is on the rise, you, you would expect during these times. Um, and protests, unions um, became ascendant the last time we were at the apex of a we. The um, oh, things like the you know the the, the McCarthy um, chasing down communists in every uh, you know corner uh, happened during the last time we were at an apex of we. So so this is this is sort of the period that we're in, and and I feel like we're really in the middle of it. The thing that's also interesting about that theory is like the technologies tend to change during that same period to to increase. So at this point. The, the technology tends to increase um, connectedness, and I think all of the apps and ways that we have to communicate um, with each other, um, you know, also kind of underlies that. So it's just an interesting time. I think I would expect more protest activity, and um, mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing it Arab Spring, France right now is experiencing it. Like it's not just an America-centered thing. I don't think it necessarily means unions become ascendant like that was kind of the solution last time i don't know what becomes the you know vehicle this time and maybe the vehicle is just the web right or maybe the vehicle right. is facebook or um um go, you know, i mean it's just go, go fund me pages and stuff i don't know yeah exactly yeah exactly like i, I don't know that it, it it necessarily repeats uh, I think I think the the generational stuff repeats. I don't know that the solution repeats, but well, it, it, you know, it's interesting. Like you mentioned, me too, and you know, there and and there are, there have been you know walkouts at several tech companies, you know, where their staff said, you know, we don't like the way you handled this case and walked out for a day. There have been a number of issues arising uh, in the same tech companies or either the same area, Silicon Valley, where they don't like like facial recognition software. Employees mm -hmm. are going. And calling on their the leadership of the you know Microsoft or whatever don't sell that uh, you know and so on and so on and then like, a couple of weeks ago there was a lady in a St. Petersburg Florida McDonald's that was accosted and wound up beating up a customer and then that led to a fast or a fight for 15 protest the very next week over safety and you know so a lot of these things are situational but they still impact customers they still impact you know companies and I guess part of this is it's harder to prep for. And the laws aren't as clear either, right? So, it, but it, it it seems to indicate to me that there's still something out there that we haven't figured out yet, related whether it whether it you know whether it's the re, the replacement of unions or the adaptation of unions into a new role, uh, as guilds did, I guess you know trade mm -hmm. guilds back be, becoming unions. I don't. I, I do you think we're on the cusp of something like that, or do you think this is the is a sort of a just a, a moment in time that will even out. Well, again, kind of to bring us full circle, I mean, I feel like that it really depends on how, and, and here I'm talking about companies, because I, I think it plays out, I think it's playing out in our politics. I mean, it's playing out in other, in other mm -hmm. avenues. But if you think about, um, if you think about companies to start with, because I think there's lessons to be learned even in politics from, from all this, but I think if you go back to where we started, which is approachability, um, you know, the reason that people protest and walk out is when they feel powerless 
um, to uh, change things. They don't feel listened to. They don't feel like their concerns are being taken seriously sort of inside the power structure that they're, that they're in, right? And right. so I feel like that, um, I mean, and you're totally right. Like the, 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 it's much more unpredictable now um, than I think it would have been, say, you know, the last time uh, we were at the apex of we. Um, but, uh, you know, the flip side is I feel like there's a lot more transparency you know, than we've ever had. Um, it's a lot, you know, and, and, and for some folks, it's like that's another big problem is there's no privacy. But there's a lot more transparency to, you know, issues when they pop up. But, but for companies, if you're kind of hoping to, to figure out, like, how to respond to this really unwieldy environment, I think a big part of that comes back down to approachability, that, you know, if your folks feel safe and comfortable, even if they disagree with you, you know, if you can disagree and be heard inside the power structure, even if ultimately maybe you don't agree, and maybe ultimately you have to leave. Um, but that dialogue and that ability and to be understood, uh, and, and hopefully maybe for the, for the power structure to go, yeah, you know, you've got a point. Um, that is, you know, a critical, um, you know, critical behavior. And, and I think the more people feel listened to and understood, and, and I totally get the flip side of this, which is that, you know, a mo- it's, it's, you know, it's hard to, to deal with a mob, and a mob isn't always, uh, you know, getting charged up about something, you know, it's, it's easy to take a, something that's, you know, quote unquote, fake news, and, uh, you know, get charged up about it, and uh, that, you know, that may not necessarily be something that you can just be approachable and sit down and talk about and fix, but... Um, but I do think that that behavior at the end of the day, if you're, if you're in a company and you're trying to run through things, um, and, and even if there is a protest, you know, how you behave after the protest and whether you try to, you know, make things safe and, and, and continue that dialogue and, and sort of reconnect after the protest can go miles and miles toward having a relationship that survives um, and can continue to operate the business and take care of customers after afterward. Yeah. Um, and we're down, believe it or not, to the last almost three minutes. Um, the, and, and so LRI helps with companies that get in hot, hot spots. And I guess I want to do a little pitch for the show sponsor and my employer, Q. Um, Q is an organization or a nonprofit organization. We've been around about the same amount of time as LRI, 40 some years. And we work with employers who want to create great workplace relationships and build positive employee relations. We do that through networking and educational opportunities across the U.S. and Canada throughout the year. Our website is cueinc.com. If you're listening to the show and want to learn more, please check it out or or go to uh, Twitter and put in Q Inc. SA and and we will answer. Um, Phil's Phil's a major supporter of Q, which we appreciate. I guess um, I guess that's the pitch. Um, Phil, what where can people find you? And I guess what are the the uh, last thoughts you would leave us with before we wrap up? Uh, easiest way to find me is on one of my two websites. So that's L R I. Which you know is Labor Relations Institute LRIOnline.com. You can also go to ApproachableLeadership.com. Uh, on the Twitter sphere, I'm at ApproachableLDR, Approachable Leader. Um, and uh, anyway, those are the, you can hit me on LinkedIn as well. Those are all good places to find me. 
Uh, and, you know, final pitch, I would just say, uh, you know, ho- hopefully you won't ever experience a walkout or labor unrest or, you know, any, any of the, uh, the issues that we just talked about. I think I've, you know, uh, sound like a broken record, but I think approachability is a good place to start if that's something you're concerned about. It's also a great place to start. Um, if you just want to have a, you know, a great positive place to work. So I would encourage you to, you know, start your journey there. Yeah, there's a conference in Atlanta in May, May 5th to the 7th. And our theme is bridging the gap, helping connect culture and your positive employee relations program. So I think that's definitely fitting approach for the era we're living in at this moment and hope to help employers do that better. Phil, thanks for being on drive through I appreciate you taking the time. It's always great when you and I get to sit down and chat. And I'm going to go ahead and close the show and give us both back like 45 seconds of the day. So (laughs) have a great afternoon, and I will talk to you again soon, okay? Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.